Everyone, we continue our read-through of the New Testament. Today we are in Revelation 4. Now, Revelation 4 and 5 really go together in that they appear, in, in it appears God in a beautiful scene of worship as the King of heaven and earth. He's surrounded by angelic courtiers, and his rule was established at creation, is exercised in the panorama of history, and is brought to fulfillment through the Lamb. He is celebrated with songs of praise. And what these chapters do is really set the tone for the entirety of the letter. In that revelation is preeminently a book about God and His greatness. The secrets of history and of spiritual conflict center on God Himself. The whole universe is destined to be filled with His glory and the goodness of God and with His praise. Hence the patterns for the outcome of history is revealed in in miniature here, right, through these cyclical revelations that we will see. When God's people are beset by temptation or persecution, a revelation of God's character and glory is the best remedy. His power guarantees the final victory. His justice guarantees vindication of the right. His goodness and magnificent guarantee blessing and comfort. And the blood of the Lamb in chapter 5 will demonstrate that redemption has already been accomplished. So that bit of an intro to chapters 4 and 5. We'll be looking at chapter 4 today, chapter 5 tomorrow. So let's read chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around, and within a day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here we have this beautiful picture of heaven. Now this is not as some people have supposed, anything to do with God's people being snatched away to heaven. This is not a picture of any kind of secret rapture or anything like that to avoid awful events that are about to take place on earth. Rather, it is about a prophet being taken into God's throne room so that he can see behind the scenes and understand both what is going to take place and how it all fits together and makes sense. These two wonderful chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, do not stand alone. At one level, they really introduce the whole sequence of prophecies that will take us throughout the rest of the book. At another level, they introduce more partially the first of the sequences of the prophecies 
the seven seals, which must be broken open, open if the scroll of God, which we'll read about in chapter 5, is to be unrolled. It may help us to keep our balance in the rich mixture of imagery in the following chapters, that if we see the book like this, structured around its sequence of sevens, we have already had the seven letters to the churches. We are going to be introduced in a little bit to the seven seals, which are opened between six and chapter 6 and chapter 8. The seventh will introduce another sequence, the seven trumpets, which are blown one by one. Then at the center of the book, we find visions which unveil the ultimate source of evil and its chief agents, the dragon and the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. This then leads into the final sequence of seven, the seven bowls of God's wrath, the, the final plagues, which are like the plagues of Egypt, will be the means of judging the great tyrannical power and rescuing God's people from its claws. These bowls of wrath are poured out in chapter 16, but their effect is fully described in chapter 17 and 18, leading to the celebration of victory over the two beasts in chapter 19. That only leaves the old dragon himself, and the lay twist of his fate, the last twist of his fate that are described in chapter 20. This then clears the final stage for the unveiling of God's eventual plan of the new Jerusalem in which heaven and earth are fully joined forever. So what we are witnessing in chapters 4 and 5 then is not the final stage of God's purposes. This is not a vision of the ultimate heaven seen as the final resting place of God's people. It is rather the admission of John into heaven as it is at the moment. The scene in the heavenly throne room is the present reality. The vision John is given while he is there is a multiple vision of what might t- must take place after these things. Not the end of the world as such, but those terrible events which were going to engulf the world and cause all the suffering for God's people about which the seven churches have just been so thoroughly warned of. John is summoned into the throne room because, like some of the ancient Israelite prophets, he is privileged to stand in God's council chamber and hear what is going on in order then to report it back to his people on the earth. Like Micaiah ben Imlah in 1 Kings 22, he sees God himself sitting on his throne with his host around him and is privy to their discussions and plans. But this scene reminds us too of Ezekiel where the prophet is given a vision of God's throne chariot carried to and fro on whirling fiery wheels. The rainbow around the throne reminds us That but also takes us back to the story of Noah in Genesis 9, where the great bow in the sky was God's visible promise of mercy, never again to destroy the earth. A rainbow looking like an emerald is a challenge to the imagination, not the only such challenge in these chapters, but the effect is a rich and dense combination of mercy, awe, and beauty. As is some of the other ancient visions, so here John sees God's counsel. Twenty-four elders we are sitting on separate thrones. They represent almost certainly the combination of the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles. They are, as it were, the embodied perfection of the people of God, sharing now in the rule of God over the world. Their white robes indicate purity and victory. Their crowns reveal them as representatives of the royal priesthood. It is not, to say the least, a placid scene. Lightning, thunder, and fire are sparkling and blooming, something that happens at significant moments throughout the book. When God's purposes are being disclosed, we are to expect things to be shaken up alarmingly. The final detail of this opening description of the throne room is something like a sea of glass. This is deeply mysterious. Solomon's temple had a sea, a huge bronze bowl, and this may have been part of the point. 
But in chapter 15, the sea of glass has become more like the Red Sea, through which the children of Israel have passed to safety. The other sea in Revelation is one from which, as in Daniel 7, the great beast emerges, which you'll see in chapter 13, while the dragon stands beside the shore, apparently presiding over the beast appearing. Then, of course, in the New Jerusalem itself, there is no longer any sea. Chapter 21, verse 1. All this seems to indicate that the sea within the throne room is a kind of symbolic representation of the fact that within God's world as it is currently is, evil is present and dangerous, yet it is contained within God's sovereign purposes and will itself eventually be overthrown. So we've seen this scene so far in terms of God's throne in heaven and John's appearing before it like an Old Testament prophet. But the idea of a throne room with someone sitting on the throne surrounded by senior counselors would have also instantly reminded John's readers of, the, of a very different court, that of Caesar. We've already heard hints of the power struggle, the kingdom of God against the kingdom of the world in the opening three chapters. Now, by strong implication, we are being invited to see that the powers of the world are simply parodies, cheap imitation copies of the one power who really and truly rules in heaven and on earth. As John's great vision unfolds, we will see it as that these human kingdoms have acquired their wicked, cruel power, and how it is that God's radically different sort of power will win the victory over them. This is the victory in which the seven letters were urging the churches to claim their share, and we now discover how that victory comes about. It begins with the unveiling of reality. Behind the complex and messy confusions of church life in ancient Turkey, behind the challenges of the fake synagogues and the threatening rulers, behind the ambiguous struggles and difficulties of ordinary Christians, there stands the heavenly throne room in which the world's creator and Lord remain sovereign. Only by stopping in our tracks and contemplating this vision can we begin to glimpse the reality which not only makes sense of our own realities, but enables us, too, to win the victory. As we begin to close our discussion here on chapter 4, I want us to look to the songs of praise that the chapter ends with in verses 8 and then the second, which begins in there in verse 11. The first one is the song in which the four living creatures sing around the clock. They praise God as the Holy One. They praise Him as the Everlasting One. The four creatures deserve our attention for other reasons too. They seem in some ways to resemble the seraphim who surround God in Isaiah's vision in the temple. And they are also quite like the four creatures of Ezekiel's vision. They represent the animal creation, including humans. But at this stage, with the human-faced creature being simply a one among the others. Alongside the king of the wild beast, the lion, the massive leader of the tame animals, the ox, and the undisputed king of the birds, the eagle. In some early Christian traditions, these represented the four gospel writers, Matthew being the human, Mark the lion, Luke the ox, and John the eagle. These remarkable creatures seem to be not merely surrounding God's throne, but ready to do his bidding. Twice John tells us that they are full of eyes, unsleeping, keeping watch for God over his whole creation. And the song of these living creatures is simply an act of adoring praise. We are meant, reading this passage, to see with the psalmist that all creation is dependent on God and worship Him in His own way. That alone is worth pondering as a striking contrast to how most of us view the animal kingdom. 
But the contrast with the 24 elders is then made all the more striking. Creation as a whole simply worships God. The humans who represent God's people understand why they do so. You deserve, they say, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. There it is. Because that's what distinguishes humans from other animals. However noble those animals may be in their own way, humans are given the capacity to reflect and to understand what's going on through the fact that they were made in the image of God. And they are able to express those realities through worship. Worship, after all, is the most central human activity. Certainly, it's the most central Christian activity. Now, this is so important because worship is what we were made for. Worship with a because in it is what marks out us as human beings. This scene reminds the foundation for everything that follows in the rest of this powerful and disturbing book at times. All that, it, all that is to come flows from the fact that the whole creation is called to worship the one true God as its creators. And that is the problem with creation as it is sought to worship itself rather than its creator. These great beings teach us the heart of what it is to be a follower of God. It is to be one who is given out to worship. Are we conscious of our vocation to worship? Do we allow our thinking about God to inform our praise? Do we think through the fact that He deserves glory, honor, and power because of what He has done for us? All this may seem rather obvious, but actually it's anything but. The world has been full of movement, systems, philosophies, and religions that have ignored creation as shabby or irrelevant to spiritual life or that have vilified it as a nasty, dark, and dangerous place full of evil and death. Equally, the world has been full of movements which instead of worshiping the God who made the world, have worshipped the world itself or the forces within it, money, sex, war, power. Revelation, however, sets out the delicate but decisive balance. All creation must worship God. And we humans are called to worship Him with mind as well as heart, recognizing that He is worthy of all praise as the Creator of all things. And as we look to this glorious picture of heavenly worship, may we pray that our worship would be done in earth as it is in heaven. God bless.